President Obama says America is certain that the Syrian government is behind the chemical attack. Asian markets feel the brunt of an imminent U.S. attack on Syria. And in sports news, Senegal faces Rwanda in a must-win encounter at the ongoing AfroBasket Championship in the Ivory Coast. But first, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. U.S. President Barack Obama says America is certain that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's government is behind the chemical attack near Damascus. This is British Prime Minister David Cameroon takes a step back on the Syria strike following the U.K. Parliament's dissent. Mel Frickberg reports. U.S. President Barack Obama said Wednesday that he had not yet made a decision on intervention in Syria, acknowledging that military engagement in the country would not stop the killing of innocent civilians, but stressing the need to deter the use of chemical weapons. We do not believe that given the delivery systems used in rockets that the opposition could have carried out these attacks and have concluded that the Syrian government carried them out, he said. But in Britain, Prime Minister David Cameron was forced to change tack on Wednesday evening in the face of growing opposition from members of the UK Parliament. Britain's opposition Labour Party threatened late Wednesday to vote against the motion to participate in military intervention. Meanwhile, the joint UN-Arab League envoy is against military action in Syria. The joint special representative of the United Nations and the League of the Arab States for Syria, Lakhda Brahimi, says any external military action against the Syrian government must have the backing of the UN Security Council. Brahimi says he's opposed to any external military action, adding that the war between government forces and opposition groups has already killed 100,000 people. He says some form of substance was used against civilians in Damascus, but adds that the UN chemical expert Inspectors on the ground must be given the opportunity to undertake their investigations. International law says that military action must be taken after a decision by the Security Council. I do know that President Obama and the American administration are not known to be trigger-happy. What they will decide, I don't know. But certainly international law is very clear. Security Council has to be brought in. I don't think you'll find many people who, who think that this is the first outrageous thing that has been done by this regime. 100,000 people have been killed. Quite a few of them have been killed by the regime. M23 rebels have killed a UN peacekeeper and wounded three others during a military operation near the eastern city of Goma in the DRC. The M23 rebels says South African and Tanzanian forces have been at the forefront of attacks. The nationalities of the latest casualties have not been provided yet. The United Nations says the force includes soldiers from South Africa, Tanzania and Malawi. Meanwhile, the South African National Defense Force says no South African soldiers have been killed in the DRC, Spokesperson Brigadier General Kola Mabanga says reports that SENDF troops have been killed should be dismissed as propaganda. Mabanga says four SENDF soldiers who were wounded during a rebel attack at the weekend are recuperating well in Goma and won't have to be brought back to South Africa. Well, regarding the security situation or developments in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the eastern part, that is Goma, it has been reported that the combined force, that is the Tanzanian as well as the South African, on their advance, they had clashes or they attacked one of the M23 bases. And also in that, we suffered a casualty, just also a bullet wound one of our soldiers. But yes, we had engagement with the M23. Thousands of civilians have fled to the Central African Republic's main international airport to escape marauding former rebel fighters. Witnesses and officials say residents began fleeing their homes in the capital, Bangui, after Seleka fighters started shooting up their neighborhood. The Central African Republic has descended into chaos since the rebels swept into Bangui in March, toppling the president and unleashing a wave of violence that the new Seleka-led government has failed to control. Ghana's highest court will issue a long-awaited ruling today on whether to overturn President John Dramani Mahama's election win last year on fraud allegations. The lawsuit by the country's largest opposition party, the New Patriotic Party, the NPP, claims the election in December was marred by irregularities, alleging ballot boxes were stuffed, voters were allowed to cast ballots without proper identification, and voting documents were left unsigned, according to the electoral 
Electoral Commission, the National Democratic Congress Party's Mahama took 50.7% of the vote over NPP candidate Nana Akufo Adru's 47.7% in the polls that observers called fair. That's the news for the hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. With the Syrian war well into its third year, the number of Syrian children forced to flee their homeland has now reached 1 million. That's according to the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, and the UN Children's Agency, UNICEF. The agencies say half of all refugees from the Syrian conflict are children. Most of them have arrived in Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, Iraq, and Egypt. Beng Publet Enriquez has a story. <laughs> They began to bomb our house. We couldn't stay there any longer. We were crying a lot. Afterwards, we came here. The latest figures show that some 740,000 Syrian refugees are children under the age of 11. Some 7,000 children have been killed during the conflict inside Syria, according to the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. UNHCR and UNICEF estimate that over 2 million children have been internally displaced within the country. The agencies warned that child labor, early marriage, and the potential for sexual exploitation and trafficking are a constant threat to these refugee children. Eight-year-old Aya is one of the million child refugees from Syria. The temporary home for her and her six brothers and sister is a makeshift tent in Lebanon's Bekaa Valley. Aya loves to learn and she practices writing her name over and over again. I love and miss Syria. I used to play with my friends and my sister. I played with them a lot on our bicycles. We played with our toys too. Aya's father says his pride and joy was that he had been able to educate his children. But for over two years now, Mohammed says Aya has not been to school and has little prospect of going soon. Aya is the only one of my children who hasn't been educated and my daughter who is disabled. All the others were educated. If the situation improves, they will all go back to Syria to study again. Meanwhile, as the war in Syria continues unabated, Aya keeps busy doing chores in their makeshift tent. She also looks after her disabled sister Labiba and occasionally dreams of a better future for herself when she grows up. I want to be a doctor so I can help children. If they come to me and they don't have money, I will give them medicine, a prescription and an injection so they can get better. A whole generation of Syrian children like Aya have been affected by this conflict with their lives and futures on hold. Most of them will never forget what they have lived through. But for now, she finds a way to smile, clinging only to those that are most dear to her. Beng Poblet Henriquez, United Nations. Meanwhile, India's rupee crashed 4% to a lifetime low against the dollar as fears of a U.S.-led military strike against Syria hammered Asian markets. Its lost glitter put a question mark on oil imports by energy-starved India even as the government tried frantically to shore up the currency as Ranasen tells us more. Indian markets singed by the Syrian fears are also bottomed out as foreign investors dumped local assets worth a billion dollars. The rupee's virtual demise can also be blamed on a string of government corruption scandals, policy paralysis and a yawning current account deficit. Iconic business leader Ratan Tata said he could only blame India's leadership for the economic emergency. Has the leadership team stood together and worked together to lead the country. Perhaps the team has not moved in one direction. We're pulling in different directions. The states are pulling in a particular direction. Coalition allies are pulling in a different direction. We are not consolidating ourselves 
in the government and we're not any longer looking at ourselves as one India. India's rattle government cleared 36 infrastructure projects worth $28 billion to prep up the gasping rupee and revive investor confidence, a move which business leaders such as Naina Kidwai, the president of the Federation of Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industries, found childish. What is the government doing to ensure that those projects actually begin to uh, crank start and happen and announce the projects that are actually now happening? are going to be some ways where there is some order that returns to the system. At the end of the day, we need to create an enabling environment for industry, Indian industry. The rupee, one of Asia's worst performing currencies this year, has lost a quarter of its value since January. And Jagdish Shetigar, former national economic advisor, said only fast-tracked reforms could stabilize the situation. Government has to play a role or the political leadership has to play a role. The all of us come together and give a signal to the investors. It's the situations like this, we don't play narrow politics. We are one and in that at the time of the national crisis, they should all come together. And to add to India's misery, gold prices surged to an all-time high of $507 per 10 grams as corporates stocked up on the yellow metal, putting further pressure on fiscal deficit. Top communist leader Sitaram Yachuri said it's time India stopped giving sops to the rich. Reforms are the ones who brought the situation. What is required is that stop these incentives for the rich. You're giving these incentives of more than 5 lakh crores annually in terms of tax concession, saying that that is required stimulus for investment. What has it led to? Your index of industrial production today is minus 1.6. So all these incentives are doing what? They're putting money in the hands of the corporates and rich who are instead of investing, parking them in these three avenues, gold, real estate and foreign exchange. And these are the only things whose price is rising. India proposes paying Iraq its second largest oil supplier for shipments in rupees. But now it seems there will be no takers for the crisp paper embossed with pictures of Mahatma Gandhi. Reporting from New Delhi, this is Rana Sen. The Peace Palace in The Hague, a globally recognized icon of peace and justice, yesterday celebrated its centennial anniversary. The palace officially opened on August 28, 1913, and was originally built to provide a symbolic home for the Permanent Court of Arbitration, a court created to end war. This report from Lily Ann Strubach in The Hague. At the celebrations attended by the Secretary-General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, King Willem Alexander, and amongst other dignitaries, the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, the Dutch government once again committed the Netherlands to promoting a better world in which conflicts are settled peacefully. The government shall promote the development of the international legal order. We take this ongoing task very seriously. That is why the Netherlands has traditionally, with pride and conviction, offered its hospitality to a large number of worthy international legal institutions. I am firmly convinced that a stable legal order and a robust economy go hand in hand. Even Hugo Grotius knew that. Security, legal certainty, personal development and enterprise are all interconnected. People who do not have to fear injustice and violence on a daily basis will be more willing to invest in their own and in their country future. And businesses that want to invest in another part of the world will only do so if they are confident of a safe return of their money. A growing number of international companies are taking their corporate social responsibility seriously and no longer do business with countries or partners that do not respect the law. They do this out of conviction and also because corporate social responsibility is an investment that yields a return. The Peace Palace in The Hague was funded by the American steel and railway magnate Andrew Carnegie, who later became an activist and philanthropist. In 1903, he donated one and a half million dollars for the erection of the Peace Palace. This building, however beautiful and impressive it may be, is ultimately no more than a collection of bricks, furniture and works of art. The International Court of Justice and the Permanent Court of Arbitration are housed here, along with the famous International Law Library and the Hague Academy of International Law. But the significance of the Peace Palace is broader. It has become a symbol of the rule of law worldwide and an icon of the Hague as international city 
of peace and justice. Intellectually and legally, the tribunals and the International Criminal Court are closely connected with this building, even though they carry out their work elsewhere. And that is what this commemoration is all about. The work of the people and institutions connected with this building and the positive influence it has on the lives of millions of men, women and children. Their names and faces may not be familiar to us, but it is they who give real meaning to this building and everything it stands for. Because their stories, often too terrible to imagine, support the picture of the 20th century as an age of horror. And that picture is justified. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte speaking at the centennial celebration of the Peace Palace in The Hague. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach. The situation in Haiti has been relatively stable since the Security Council was last briefed, though there is still a stalemate regarding elections. That's what Ambassador Sandra Honore of Trinidad and Tobago, the head of the UN stabilization mission in Haiti, Minusta, told the council yesterday. According to Ambassador Honore, the Haitian National Police is increasingly assuming responsibility for the provision of internal security in the country. Before briefing the Security Council, Ambassador Honore told UN Radio's Derek Mbata that UN Police UN Paul is helping in the professionalization of the Haitian National Police. Our UNPOL component has been working assiduously with the government of Haiti, with the Haitian National Police, concerning the HNP Development Plan 2012-2016, in keeping with which one of the goals is to attain a strength of some 15,000 officers in the HNP by the year 2016. The HNP, you are referring to the Haitian National Police? That is correct. So you are saying that there is progress on that front? Yes, we have seen uh, definite gains in the performance of the Haitian National Police. Of course, there is still a lot of work to be done. What are some of the challenges that Minusta is facing in dealing with this particular issue? In dealing with this particular issue, one of the challenges that Minusta is facing, of course, is the question of uh, human resource capacity, the question of the need for continued training and development at the middle management levels, and the need for deployment of more of the cadets who will be graduating from the training programs. At present, there is the 24th promotion, which will be graduating in November of some 1,000 cadets, and we hope to take in another 1,000 for the 25th promotion. One of the things that we would like to see is more balanced distribution of these cadets throughout the country and not only in the metropolitan centers. And what about uh, when it comes to the issue of gender, having enough female officers? There is a plan to increase the number of female cadets and officers so that there be more gender sensitivity, of course, in the work of the HNP. Now, has there been an improvement uh, in the security of ordinary Haitians? Crime, has it gone down? Yes, we have seen uh, the homicide rate dropping, the number of kidnappings dropping significantly, as a matter of fact, up to today, for the month of August, there has been no case of kidnapping reported in the country. That is an achievement. And other instances of crime have also been in decline vis-à-vis -vis the similar period for last year. Let's talk about the political front. Yes. Is, is Haiti uh, fairly stable right now? From the security point of view, the country is relatively stable. On the political front, there is an impasse between the executive and the legislature at the present time with respect to partial senatorial, municipal and uh, local elections which should have been convened some time ago but have not yet been and we have in fact been engaging the legislature, the executive, civil society, political parties on the question of the impasse over the question of election. Any hope of resolving this impasse soon? An unwritten part of our mandate is to maintain always hope and we therefore are confident that the work that we are doing together with uh, other partners of the international community will result in resolution of that situation. Madam Honore, tell me now about uh, 
the human rights, is there an improvement in this area of human rights in Haiti? I would say that there has been some improvement. Of course, as you know, in these matters, there are always challenges. And so we continue to work on the matter of human rights together with the government because that is also one of the areas of concentration of the mission. What are some of those challenges in the area of human rights? Can you give me an example or two? In the area of human rights, I would say that possibly one of the challenges is that there is not perhaps the transparency that all players in the human rights field would like to see. And possibly that might just be one that I could point to at this time. Now, how soon can we expect MINUSTA to complete its mandate? The mandate of MINUSTA, in keeping with the Security Council resolution, will come to an end in October of 2013 and will be up for review by the Security Council. The Secretary General has made certain recommendations to the Council with respect to the reduction of force levels. The mission is now in a stage of consolidation. There have been gradual reductions over the past two years and therefore it would be up to the Council to decide on the renewal of the mission in October and on what form or shape the mission will take subsequent to that. UN Ambassador Sandra Honore of Trinidad and Tobago talking to Derek Mbata. While Malawi has strengthened its judicial policies in recent years, it still struggles to implement and enforce them efficiently and effectively. This is according to the Southern African Litigation Centre, who together with other stakeholders have gathered around 100 Malawian justice officials, including magistrates and prosecutors, to undergo specialised legal training focused on improving the administration of pretrial justice. The two-week training currently under way in three towns in that country has been designed to address substantial challenges besetting the Malawian pre-trial detention system and manifesting in substantial rights violations. Nicole Fritz, Executive Director of Salk, elaborates. Malawi in, in recent years has been notorious for the, the huge overcrowding in its prisons. That results from huge numbers of remand prisoners, so prisoners who in fact have not been brought to trial, so are entitled to the presumption of innocence and are awaiting trial. Being incarcerated in these prisons, they're left there for many, many years. I mean, in some cases, over a decade before finally being brought to trial. What that has meant is that there is terrible overcrowding, that those incarcerated suffer tremendous human rights violations. There's insufficient food, shelter, and many of these remand prisoners then suffer uh, health consequences. They either get sick, they're unable to access medication that would be needed to make them better. And I think one has to recall, too, is that it's not only these individuals who are are suffering the violations, but in many cases, these are young men who are impoverished, who have been picked up on charges like loitering, who are then imprisoned awaiting trial. And as the family's breadwinners mean that the entire family is impoverished and must wait in this impoverished state for many years before they are brought to trial. So the training that has been implemented is specifically intended to target these types of challenges that have manifested within the Malawian justice system. So how do you turn the situation around? Well, I mean, one of, one of the ways is just simply making it clear what the, what the law is and what the law states. Interestingly, there have been a number of amendments and reforms to Malawi's law that its constitution is clear that persons must be brought to trial with a reasonable period, that persons are eligible for bail, and there are clear guidelines stipulating how that must be provided. And in many cases, because Malawi is a relatively sort of impoverished country, many judicial officials simply don't have access to the latest statutes, uh, law books. They don't have access to the internet. In many cases, it's just about providing them with the information about stipulating clearly what the law is and what their powers are under that law. And so this is in part what the training is about, is just making sure that that judicial officials, prosecutors understand very clearly what Malawi's law says, what the rights of, of detainees are, of those awaiting trial, and what their powers are to ensure that um, that these persons are brought to trial within a reasonable period of time. Nicole, give us more details about the training. What will it entail? It's 
being conducted in three major uh, cities in Malawi. It's a gathering of more than 100 judicial officials. And, and the training has been provided by Malawian academics from Chancellor College, which is the law school linked to the university, the Malawian University, also um, by the Institute for Professional Legal Trainers, which is based here in South Africa, and by the Southern Africa Litigation Center. And, and it's several days training, and it's about systematically working through the different laws, what the Constitution provides, what the relevant ordinary statutes provide as relates to being brought to trial within a reasonable period of time, who's eligible for bail, what standards of incarceration must be so that juveniles must be separated from adult prisoners. So it, it's, it's systematically working through the changes that in the law and what those provide. So will the Southern African Litigation Center extend this type of training to other African states? Because these challenges are not only unique to Malawi. That's absolutely right. These are not challenges that are only seen in Malawi. Although I have to say that the type of overcrowding that we have witnessed in Malawi is amongst the most egregious in Southern Africa. This is the second and a more extended training that's been provided in Malawi. The initial pilot training was happened last year. But certainly the hope is that once we monitor and evaluate the kind of response to this training, that this will be rolled out in other Southern African states too. That was Nicole Fritz, Executive Director of the Southern African Litigation Centre, talking to Benjamin Mushatama. Human Rights Watch says children as young as eight years old are working in Tanzanian small-scale gold mines with grave risks to their health and even their lives. In a report released today, the rights group says the Tanzanian government should curb child labor in small-scale mining, including informal, unlicensed mines, and the World Bank and donor countries should support these efforts. The 96-page report describes how thousands of children work in licensed and unlicensed small-scale gold mines in Tanzania, Africa's fourth-largest gold producer. To discuss the findings of the report, here is Human Rights Watch researcher in Dar es Salaam, Gillian Kippenberg. We did research in Tanzania, um, one of the main countries for small-scale gold mining in Africa, and looked into the issue of child labor. And we found that there are well, at least thousands of children working in hazardous conditions in these small-scale gold mines. So they really risk injury or even death. For example, they work in very deep, unstable shafts, um, and we've talked to some children who actually were involved in accidents uh, where uh, these shafts or pits collapsed on them. They also carry extremely heavy loads, uh, far heavier than should be the case at a young age. And they use mercury, which is a toxic substance, to withdraw the gold from the ore. Many children um, who work in the mines are orphans, so uh, we found that many of them are in very, living in very precarious situations and are very vulnerable to child labor and to exploitation. And in addition, girls often face sexual harassment or may also become victims of commercial sexual exploitation. So all of this really means that um, children who work in small-scale gold mining are actually you know, working in one of the worst forms of child, child labor, which is prohibited under international law but also under Tanzanian law. And what prompted the need for this research and how was it conducted? So we visited different small-scale gold mines in Tanzania, and particularly in Data District, Kahama District, and Tunia District, which are, belong to some of the main gold mining areas. And we interviewed a large range of people, um, among them 61 children who were themselves working in mining um, from the ages of 8 and onwards older. Um, we also interviewed some six girls who were commercially sexually exploited. And in addition, we interviewed... Uh, a wide range of actors, so adult miners, and managers of mines, parents of the child laborers, teachers and head teachers, post workers in mining areas, um, association of small-scale gold miners, um, traders uh, in Tanzania as well as um, outside Tanzania, um, and local and national government authorities from different ministries, as well as NGOs, UN experts, and so on. So overall, we interviewed over 200 people. Uh, what motivated us to do this, this research is that we are quite aware that child labor in mining is one of the most hazardous forms of child labor globally. Uh, it's not just a problem in Tanzania, it's a problem in many parts of the world. 
we chose Tanzania because it's a, a pretty um, important country for this in Africa. It's the fourth largest growth producer in Africa, producing gold both from small-scale mining as well as from industrial large-scale mining. It has a very significant small-scale mining sector. It's estimated that around 800,000 people work in this sector, men, women, and children. And also, Tanzania is actually a country that is contributing significant amounts of mercury to the global burden of mercury, a toxic chemical that is an environmental threat. So in Africa, it's one of the top polluters. And uh, what should the government be doing to address child labor in mines? The government of Tanzania, um, with the support of donors, really has to do more to get children out of the mines and into school or vocational training. In particular, recommending, we are recommending that the government make sure that labor inspectors regularly visit mines and check up whether there is child labor. And if they do find child labor, that employers are appropriately sanctioned. This has to be also the case in unlicensed informal sector mines and not only in the uh, minority licensed sites. At the moment, there are very, very few government inspections on child labor in mines in any event, but there are none in the unlicensed sites. And the unlicensed sites are the majority of mining sites. We think the government needs to also do more to ease access to education, for example, by scrapping all illegal fees for primary school or other fees, additional fees and costs that appear even though uh, primary education should be free of charge here in Tanzania. Um, and should also do more to facilitate access to secondary school. We saw in our research that many children drop out of primary school or when they finish primary school, don't make the jump to secondary school. So there's really this issue of, you know, children missing out on education and getting trapped in this mining work and not being able to, to learn um, at school. In particular, the government really should also do more to ensure that orphans in mining areas are included in programs that, you know, seek to support orphans and vulnerable children. For example, there is a so-called cash transfer program that's actually meant for very poor and vulnerable families. Orphans in mining areas should benefit from these sorts of measures. Finally, the government really has to do more to reduce mercury use in mining, promote alternatives to mercury, which do exist but are harder to implement, and the government should do much more to provide a really strong health response by, for example, increasing the capacity of the health sector to monitor, test, and treat mercury poisoning. Recently, the government uh, did an, took an important step in supporting an international treaty on mercury. This is a new global international convention, the so-called Minamata Convention, which was just agreed this year, January, and which will be officially adopted in Japan in about six weeks' time. And we call upon the Tanzanian government also to sign the convention in Japan and to ratify it as soon as possible. That was Human Rights Watch researcher Gillian Kippenberg, and she was on the line from Dar es Salaam in Tanzania talking to Ntlantla Matlangu. We now cross over to Anne Musa for the headlines. Good morning. The joint UN League envoy for Syria, Lakhdar Brahimi, has opposed any external military action, saying the war between government forces and opposition groups has already killed 100,000 people. At least 20 people have been killed in violent clashes in Masabat County, northeastern Kenya, and Egyptian police have arrested 60 more Brotherhood members and supporters in an ongoing crackdown over the past 24 hours. Details and more at the top of the hour. Thank you, Anne. South Africa's Social Development Minister Batabi Litlamini says the scourge of violence against women in South Africa is also reflected in the manner in which government officials treat victims of violence. The minister says the attitude by civil servants towards women who have experienced domestic violence such as rape is a symbol of deteriorating moral fiber in society at large. Batabile was speaking at the African Women's Independent Forum in Cape Town. Abongwe Kobokana compiled this report. 
This year's conference is held under the theme Ending Violence Against Women on Protecting Human Rights and Dignity. Delegates from various non-governmental organizations across the continent are represented. The gathering also forms part of the International Women's Month. Social Development Minister Batabile Zamini, who was the main speaker, called on women to use their power against the abuse of women. She says bad treatment by government officials towards women who report their perpetrators is becoming a problem. How long was your dress when you were raped? As if you are supposed to be raped when you are wearing a short dress. Or when you go to social workers, they want you to show how you were raped. Eh? It happens. Now, If in organizations there is a violence against women, but very subtle, through a, a, a positions, but also when people want to sleep with you before you get a position. Catherine Linse, a student from the University of Stellenbosch, became a victim of women abuse when she was kidnapped and raped a few years ago. She maintained that her ordeal was exacerbated further by the treatment she received from the police and in hospital during that time. She believed that this is a failure of the justice system at large. Something that I've always held sacred and holy to me, something that I would give to someone that I loved and never get back, my virginity. It is suspected that I had been gang raped, but I will never know how many of the gangsters took their turn and how this happened. This incident and the way that I was treated enabled me to understand and to realize the plight of victims of violence against women. In receiving assistance from doctors in the form of medical care and psychologists and in the form of trauma counseling, all obtained privately. I realize the dire need for assistance for women in disadvantaged communities who can't access or afford private care and are not in the position to make choices, one of our most fundamental rights. Deputy Minister of Justice and Constitutional Development John Jeffries was also one of the main speakers. He says there is a lot of work being done in terms of legislation related to women abuse, but the implementation of these acts remains a challenge. He told the gathering that the reopening of the sexual offences courts is aimed at dealing with these matters. We need to change the hearts and mind of the people. We can pass many laws in Parliament and we can do a myriad of different things to combat gender-based violence, but we cannot pass an act that will eliminate all sexist, patriarchal or stereotypical prejudices or beliefs. South Africa's Deputy Minister of Justice and Constitutional Development, John Jeffries, ending that report by Abongwe Kobokana. South Africans are encouraged to escape the daily grind of day-to-day living and become a nation of fun seekers this September. The Department of Tourism and its partners has introduced a new domestic tourism campaign directed at growing the number of domestic travelers in the country. Komotsomo Pulane attended the event and filed the following report. Tourism Month festivities are focused on South Africa's Northwest Province this year. The Minister of Tourism, Joint Journalists and Members of Travel Trade to celebrate some of the fantastic experiences that the province has to offer. Activities that the group had took in included the exhilarating Mahalisberg canopy swings and slide, quad biking at the Hartebia Sport, river rafting, water pistol battles and hot air ballooning. There was a strong slant on water-based tourism activities to reflect the United Nations World Travel Organization worldwide theme, Tourism and Water, Protecting Our Common Future. Addressing the event, Minister Van Skalkweg said South Africa's tourism growth rate, that's well above the global growth rate, justifies the need to celebrate tourism. He emphasized that the industry contributes over 2% directly and 9% overall to the gross domestic products. In our national tourism sector strategy on our objectives for 2020, we said by then we want to be one of the top 20 destinations in the world. We are absolutely on target in achieving that objective. We are outperforming all our direct competitors and it is really going well in our country. But in saying that, we must always 
always realize one can never become complacent because in this industry things can change suddenly the new domestic tourism marketing campaign called nothing's more fun than a shot left emphasizes the fun of a domestic leisure getaway. The aim of the campaign is to remind South Africans that taking a holiday gives benefits that they enjoy and a chance to experience new places. The campaign also offers a number of holiday packages, deals that have been engineered in partnership with South African tourism travel trade partners to deliver accessible and affordable holidays. More from Tulani Nzima, Chief Executive Officer of the South African Tourism, an organization which forms part of the Department of Tourism. The campaign is multifaceted, it's got different faces, it's got different uh, objectives along the way. And insofar as uh, m- uh, making people travel, our research indicates that there are two key things that we need to address. The first one is people say, give us a reason to travel. Why must I travel and where must I travel to? So the, the campaign is aimed at showcasing the length and, and breadth of our country in terms of tourist experiences as well as going to discover the, these hidden gems. The other one is to make sure that people in the different provinces can in fact discover those kind of tourist experiences themselves that they are not privy to. Ultimately, we want every province to be proud of its own unique selling uh, uh, values. South Africa's Minister of Tourism, Martinez van Skagweek, stressed that this year's Tourism Month would herald a new era for domestic tourism in the country. For Channel Africa, I'm Mohamed Mupulani in Hartebius Bordam in South Africa's Northwest Province. We now cross over to Wisani Matabula for our economics news. Morning, Lulu. The South African government is concerned that leaders in the mining sector are not doing enough to make transformation a reality. Minerals Resources Deputy Minister Godfrey Oliphant says uh, transformation in the sector needs to be at 26% by May next year. However, it's conceded that a collective effort must be made to change the situation. Labor analyst Andrew Levy says it's difficult to transform the sector as it's currently facing unrest. Uh, there are more strikes and that uh, more people are involved and all they're lasting longer. So if you take, for example, the measure of work days lost, then that's certainly very significantly increasing. And I think in part um, it's caused by um, a refusal to move in uh, negotiations based on demands, which frankly are work of fiction. The United Nations World Tourism Organization says its General Assembly held in both Zimbabwe and Zambia has left a positive impression on all the delegates. Zambia closed the gathering last night. 120 government delegates, including 49 ministers, attended the event. UNWTO Secretary General Talib Rifia explains. The organization, the arrangements were done very, very much up to the standards that we expect and were very satisfactory and left a very positive impression on all the delegates. The African Development Bank and the government of Djibouti have signed the funding agreements totaling $7.5 million for a geothermal exploration project in the region of Lake Asal. The financing scheme includes a grant and a loan from the bank's soft loan arm, the African Development Fund, to the tune of $5.3 million and a $0.4 million respectively. The contribution from the AFDB will be used to continue to raise more financing and will serve as a catalyst to rally in independent geothermal electricity producers. Currently, Djibouti relies mostly on fossil fuels and some hydropower imports from Ethiopia. Kenya Commercial Bank, the country's largest bank by assets, has posted a 19% rise in first half pre-tax profit, $215.3 million, as is its interest income rose. KCB also operates in Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda, South Sudan and Burundi. Chief Executive Joshua Oyigara says that the bank's subsidiaries grew 80% during the period but aims to consolidate its performance before considering further expansion. Kenyan lenders have reported mixed financial results for the first six months of the year with Equity Bank posting a 17% increase in profit while Barclays Kenya reported a 13% drop. 
Absa Life Botswana, a wholly owned subsidiary of Absa Financial Services, has received approval from the relevant authorities in South Africa and Botswana to change its brand name to Bartlett's Life Botswana. The adoption of the Bartlett's name and brand by Absa Life Botswana provides the basis on which to fulfill the ambition to make Bartlett's the essential banking and financial services brand in Botswana. Bartlett's Bank has operated in the country for more than 80 years. The prospects for the insurance business is bullish right now with Absa Life Botswana focused to produce gross premium income of $17 million this year and expected to maintain strong growth in the medium term. Financial indicators, the dollar at uh, 10.38 South African rands, at 8.62 Botswana Pulas and 5.35 Zambian Quatches. Also trading at 0.64 to the British pound and at 0.74 to the euro. Platinum now at $1,527 and gold at $1,408 a fine ounce. And uh, Brent crude oil going down two notches uh, from yesterday's close of 118 now at $116.90 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Thank you, Isani. We now cross over to Tammy Kluza for our sports news. In your sports update, let's start with basketball. The Rwanda national basketball team will face Senegal this evening in a round of eight encounter at the ongoing Africa Basketball Championship at the Palais de Terreville in Abidjan in Ivory Coast. Rwandan captain Aristide Mugabe says that he is going to be a tough game, but they are going to come out as hard as possible. Rwanda finished third in Group B with a 1-2 ratio, having won their opening game against Burkina Faso by 80 points to 61, losing to Morocco 57 to to 87 in the next game and a very disheartening loss to the reigning continental championship uh, Tunisia that they lost the game by 81 points to 83 after an overtime. And now in soccer, South African Orlando Pirates have left for Egypt last night at the OR Tambo International Airport. Pirates will play their second leg match against Zamalek on Sunday in Egypt. Pirates have been scoring numerous goals in the Kev competition lately, which is something impressive considering they had a gold drought in the past. Striker Lennox Patella believes that Pirates have the right suppliers and as a striker he, is just, he just needs to continue positioning himself accurately. The kind of players that Pirates possesses, any striker just needs to find, just needs to be in the right positions. The supplier will always be there. So like I said, I'm, I'm very happy that I've managed to score goals in the, in the, in the last couple of games. Pirates will play the second leg away from home. The game will be staged at the El Guna in the city of Haggadah in Egypt. They are the top of their group. If they win their next match against Samalek, they will automatically qualify for the semi-finals. Pirates midfielder Tlose Hulela knows what the fans and the country as a whole expects from them. Egypt, you know, in Africa, you know, they are the household of in football, you know. Uh, they've been ruling the, the, the African uh, soccer for, for, for some time, you know. But I, I think now mentally we are strong, mentally prepared, and we know the expectation uh, from back home in South Africa, uh, that the, the support that they are, they are giving us, they, obviously they are looking for us to, to, to come up with something. A win for us this time, I, I think it's going to give us a, a good chance for us to, to go into the, the semi-finals. And now in local football, Pat- Platinum Stars have scored a late equaliser to hold Mamelodi Sundowns to a one-all draw in a PSL match at Loftus yesterday, while Bloemfontein Celtic peeped the newly promoted Bulukwane City by three goals to two. And George Malulika's first half strike has gained Supersport back to the top of the PSL table as they defeated Swane Rivals University of Pretoria, Pretoria 1-0 in a fiercely contested encounter. That was played at the Tag Stadium last night. Yesterday's other results, University of Pretoria nil, Supersport United 1, Vets 1, Golden Arrows nil, Free State Stars 2, and Marispec United nil. And netball, South Africa are through to the quarterfinals of the World Youth Netball Championship in Glasgow in Scotland, even though they lost their last group match against Australia last night. The tournament favourites, Australia, easily dispersed the Spa Baby Proteus by 59 points to 27 to finish top of their group. Meanwhile, the Anatolian coach, Joriette Benenhorst, said that they lost a possession easily and the Aussies were more physical 
than them. We need to keep our position and we um, lost our position, a lot of confidence on court um, and I think, um, yeah, it was tough out there, um, they go in physically very strong and um, we waited for the umpires to blow the whistle and it didn't happen, so um, we need to adapt and we need to be a little bit more physical in the game. And now in cycling, Italy bagged the first gold medal at the UCI MTB and Trials World Championships in South Africa's provincial town of KwaZulu-Natal, Peter Marisbeck, with a well-executive team strategy to take the relay world title in a sprint finish from France with Germany in third. Dave McLeod has more. Italy played their trump card up front with Marco Fontana blitzing a sub-14-minute lap to set them up nicely and then handing over to junior Gueli Bertolini. The female rider Eva Lechner was third and this is where the drama hotted up as the Canadians took control but it was short-lived as their gamble to race Sandra Walter last backfired as she slipped back to fourth and Italy took their second team relay title in four years. Fontana says he's excited about this course. This is cross-country for me, you know, fast, technical, speed, not like just steep you know and you know like taking like five minutes just to go up a hill which is wide and straight and gravel you know and then roll down you know this is something we should always you know ride this is and i mean everybody enjoy i mean and so now in rugby, the South African Rugby Union, Saru, yesterday named the sports performance brand ASICS as the new apparel sponsor of the Springboks and their associated national teams. The six-year deal runs from January the 1st next year until December 2019, taking in Rugby World Cups in England 2015 and Japan, the birthplace of ASICS in 2019. As well as providing key to the Springboks, ASICS will supply kit and apparel to their associated national teams, including the women's and all-age group teams, as well as Saru referees. And finally with golf, today the European Tour Stages, the ISPS Hunter Wales Open, is the first counting event for European Ryder Cup points. The Ryder Cup captain Paul McGinley will hit the first shot this morning, highlighting that any European can make his team for September 2014. Here is Paul McGinley. I think the Ryder Cup's journey, Ryder Cup captain's journey, has uh, got a number of milestones along the way, and the start of the points is certainly a big milestone. And looking forward to it starting this week. I think it's nice that we're doing it this year. Um, I'm going to be hitting the first shot. Captain hits the first shot, and then uh, I'm also playing with the winner of the Challenge Tour and also the winner of the of the Tour School. So it's a really nice European tour, tour story. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, U.S. President Obama says America is certain that the Syrian government is behind the chemical attack and Asian markets feel the brunt of an imminent U.S. attack on Syria. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, and the producer, Lebumu Namukhulu, technical producer, Ravelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Sankomota with Papa.